We're on the record. I'm Sheila Cast. Good morning. Over the past decade, crimes committed by young people in Maryland fell by 50 percent, according to a recent report by the State Department of Juvenile Services. However, in the aftermath of the pandemic, there's been a rise in juvenile arrests, and certain categories of crime, like carjackings and handgun violations, have risen steeply. At the same time, some lawmakers and prosecutors have questioned whether recent juvenile justice reforms have gone too far. Joining me to talk about it is Maryland Secretary of Juvenile Services, Vincent Chiraldi. Chiraldi previously served as Commissioner of New York City's Department of Corrections and Director of Juvenile Corrections in Washington, D.C. Welcome back to On the Record, Secretary Chiraldi. Thanks for having me back on. 25,000 juvenile complaints, that's arrests and referrals to your department in 2014. This year, about 12,000 complaints. What's driving youth crime down in Maryland? Well, it's a, it's not just in Maryland. It's been a national phenomenon. If you go back to the year 2000, it's been about a uh, two-thirds decline nationally in all forms of crime. Uh, and part of that is a decline in uh, violent crimes, pretty steep declines in violent crime pre-pandemic. Um, I think a couple things. One is uh, graduation rates had been increasing. Uh, and, you know, it's sort of, you know, very often when we go to what's happening with juvenile crime, we go to how much or not are we punishing kids. But that's just a little thimble full of the reality of what affects crime and kids being attached to positive institutions like family and school have so much more to do with what's going on with crime than, you know, the tail end punishment that we meet out. Uh, so graduation rates had been increasing. Um, I think there was that causes kids to be more attached to you know positive stuff, teachers, coaches, after school activities, and a lot of that got really jolted by the pandemic nationally. Uh, the absentee rate from schools is twice what it was pre-pandemic, um, and I, I think that helps us explain really a lot of why. Some kids, especially kids who are you know, barely holding on, uh, who didn't have a lot of support at home, who didn't have a lot of support in their neighborhood, who didn't well, you know, yeah. work, work great in school. The 12,000 you know, 12, complaints this year reflect a 17% increase from the lowest level exactly. of complaints, which was just 7,100 in 2021. So are you saying the pandemic is the whole reason for the recent rise in crime? Well, I mean, it's interesting because so what happened was it went from about 13 down to 7,100, right? 13,000, 13, uh-huh. right? To about 7,100 uh, in that first year of the pandemic. And I think that is because everybody stayed home and kids weren't going to school, they weren't going out. Um, and so 7,100 was really an anomaly uh, that was caused by, you know, essentially a lockdown. Um and 12,000 is more the trend that had been happening over the previous 10 years. If you just do a straight line over the last 10 years, it would have been about 12,000 in uh, last fiscal year, the one that just ended in June. So, uh, you know, I, I think that it's a big part of it. If you ask the question, why did juvenile crime go up since the bottom of the pandemic versus, uh, versus you know, now, um, here and everywhere else? Uh, in the country, Chicago, Miami, New York, LA, it wasn't just here. Um, I think I think the pandemic explains a whole a whole lot of it. 
Crimes of violence fell 16.5% from 2020 to 2023. But as I mentioned, some crimes like carjackings, handgun violations are up. Handgun violations rose a stunning 220%. Where are kids getting these guns? Yeah, mostly they're getting them from their, you know, sort of parents' underwear drawers and uh, the black market. Kids can't, you know, under 18, they can't really legally go and buy a gun. So almost every possession of a gun by a kid is illegal. Um, And, you know, when you talk to young people, both just informally as I walk around the facilities, but also in the research, they're basically saying they're, they're, they're obtaining guns to protect themselves from their perception that everybody else has got a gun. So it's almost like a little arms race going on um, where kids, some of whom don't intend to use the gun to commit harm, but are just carrying it for protection, uh, are carrying it for protection. And then what happens then problematically, so there's a million problems, right? We could all imagine our own kid carrying a gun, how, how we'd feel. But what happens then is there's no fist fights anymore uh, because if you throw, you know, if you're in an altercation with another kid, you're worried about whether he's going to pull a gun and you may pull that gun first. Uh, and that really is a dangerous, dangerous situation that we as leaders in the state need to quell. You presented this data to lawmakers last month and were met with quite a bit of skepticism. It doesn't seem to match what they're hearing from constituents. Is crime actually down or are police arresting fewer people and bringing fewer charges against juveniles? Yeah, I don't think that the the police are arresting fewer people holds water because it's down in all categories. Um, and it's, it's like, so for example, um, one out of 13 homicide arrests last year, only one out of 13 were juveniles. It's hard for me to imagine that police aren't arresting juveniles for homicides. It's much more likely that one out of 13 is an actual reflection of what's going on with crime, or at least the crime that police solve. Um, so I, I didn't, I didn't think that that really held much water. I don't, you know, that's true in a variety of other crime categories that kids make up the minority of serious crime. I don't think police are not arresting kids for serious crime. None of the law changes affect serious violent crime. They only affect the nonviolent crime categories. So uh, I think it's probably more of a reflection. I mean, arrests have never been a perfect uh, measure of crime for either adults or juveniles. So they're still imperfect. I just don't know if they're any more imperfect than they used to be. I want to ask you specifically about the letter that you and Baltimore Police Commissioner Richard Worley got from members of the Baltimore City Delegation to the General Assembly. They raised concerns about an incident in which young people suspected of assault and carjacking were arrested and then released to their parents Within hours, quote, when suspects of violent crimes are released immediately, it leaves the public at risk and provides neither accountability, justice, nor much-needed structured support services, close quote. So when young people are arrested for violent offenses like assault and carjacking, are they supposed to be detained? What what, what is the procedure? Yeah, so we have a couple of criteria where we, uh, through which we detain kids. Uh, Any kid arrested for a gun crime any kid arrested for a category one crime should be detained. Category, category one, one is crime is the, the, the sort of violent, like robberies, you know, carjackings, okay. things like that. Uh, they should be detained. That's our policy. 
And then for kids who are arrested for less serious uh, offenses, petty theft would be an example. Um, we, uh, we use a risk assessment instrument that's been validated by the University of Maryland that helps us forecast um, the likelihood that that kid will reoffend or fail to appear in court, which is the two purposes of detention, right? Because it's all pretrial, right? And so um, if a kid's low risk, uh, we tend not to detain them because detaining low risk kids who don't commit serious crimes makes them worse. They go into correctional facilities where they hang out with other kids who have done more serious stuff, and it tends to be a contagion effect. Um, I can't talk about individual cases, but sometimes staff makes mistakes, both on the BPD and the DJS side, uh, police department and Department of Juvenile Services. We had actually begun working with BPD, state's attorneys, and the defense bar to iron out some of the informal processes that occur when police bring a kid in for detention. There's a lot of conversations, a lot of phone calls, not a lot of putting stuff in writing, uh, which can con cause confusion and finger pointing. Uh, and we should be able to announce a resolution to some of those informal approaches within a week or two. But we had already begun that even before the letter came to us from those elected officials. And we appreciate that. We know that their constituents are concerned and they should be concerned. We should not be releasing kids who have uh, uh, allegations of serious crimes. That just shouldn't happen. This is On the Record. I'm Sheila Cass speaking with Vincent Schiraldi, Secretary of the Maryland Department of Juvenile Services, about trends in youth crime. Um, and concern about crime may prompt lawmakers to tweak some recent juvenile justice reforms when they meet in January, including reforms that limit police from questioning minors and that ban incarceration for minor offenses. Are you concerned um, that lawmakers will take a reactionary approach to the recent increase in crime? So, you know, I've been in this field for 43 years, right, which is a pretty decent chunk of mass incarceration. Mass incarceration just commemorated, I won't say celebrated, its 50th anniversary. Around 50 years ago was when Richard Nixon declared a war on drugs, a kind of very racialized approach to criminal justice that was very specifically targeted at uh, people of color. Uh, it increased our prison populations eightfold and is, I think, generally viewed as a disastrous public policy response to rising crime. During that time, there were also politicians on both sides of the aisle who started calling kids super predators and focusing very, very punitive uh, responses on kids, uh, far, uh, far disparate to their involvement in criminal justice. So, yeah, there's always that worry, right? I, I, uh, I lived through that. I was an advocate and, and a department head during much of that time, and it was those were terrible times, mostly targeted at poor kids of color. So we don't, we definitely don't want to go down that road again. I haven't quite heard that level of uh, of changing of the law. I mean, the law that they passed last year, the juvenile justice reform law, came after several years of very, you know, I think intelligent deliberation around what research says works with young people. Um, it was targeted nonviolent young, nonviolent twelve year olds. Um, can it be tweaked? Of course, every law could be tweaked. But I think by and large, it was a sensible law. It's had pretty good outcomes. The, the recidivism rates for kids under age 13 
uh, in our department have plummeted since then. Kids, young kids who commit nonviolent crimes shouldn't be dragged any further into a system that might make them worse. Not because we're trying to make them worse, but just because there's a, there's a bit of a you know an effect where young people, when they associate with more serious kids who have done more serious uh, offending, uh, get worse. And we don't want that to happen. We want to put them into programs and divert them out. Uh, and so we can, partly so we can focus on the kids that have more serious challenges and put our resources there. Um, so I'm not I'm not super worried that the that the um, that the legislature will overreact, um, but you know we're going to see. Tell me about the Thrive Academy that your department launched to provide wraparound services to young people in Baltimore City and Baltimore County who are at highest risk of gun violence. What what support does Thrive Academy offer? I think the Thrive Academy is a really good example of why we need to pay attention to the data. So over half of the of the gun violence committed by and against, and against is important because it's about twice as many of our kids are victims of gun violence as our victimizers. So by and against DJS youth occur in Baltimore City and Baltimore County. If you add in Prince George's County, it's about two thirds of the, of the gun violence by and against our kids. And so, um, what we did is we, we took data, the Annie Casey Foundation and the National Institute for Criminal Justice Reform helped us analyze three and a half years worth of data. And basically what we did was we looked at the 15, 12, 13,000 kids who come into our care every year, 2% of whom are involved in gun violence. And we said, what separates that 2% from that 98%? So we could forecast um who might be involved, you know, either as a victim or a perpetrator of gun violence. And then we also conferred with community people, law enforcement, prosecutors, defense attorneys to to even gain more precision around who we're going to focus these these resources on. Then we bring the kids in and their families. We have a respectful conversation with them to explain to them the ramifications of gun violence. You could come to harm. You could harm somebody else. You could go to prison. But we're not just lecturing them because then we have a, a whole array of services, supports, and opportunities. We call it our suitcase for success. That includes a life coach that will see them every day, who is very often somebody who's walked in their shoes as a formerly incarcerated person. That includes specialized case managers who have been specially trained and have smaller caseloads. And then a whole bunch of resources. So if a young person needs to go to college, we can help them get into college and support them until they and their families have gotten a Pell Grant. Uh, if they need employment, we can get them subsidized employment. If they need service because they want to go into a service industry, we can help them get paid apprenticeships. Uh, if their families or them are in danger, we can help them move. Um, and then we will have tra uh, trauma therapy because I've never met a kid that's using guns, that also hasn't been seen, some unspeakably traumatic stuff. And then finally, sort of recreational, fun, cultural activities, museums, ball games, camping trips, uh, really a, a solid bunch of stuff to, to divert them. So we started that September 1st in Baltimore City and Baltimore County, about 35 of our most at-risk kids, not one of them has been involved in gun violence in them. Not one has even been arrested for anything. And we uh, expect to expand 
to Prince George's County before the end of the year, and then in Arundel County shortly after that, and then statewide. Thanks, Secretary Sheraldi. Thank you very much. Maryland Secretary of Juvenile Services Vincent Sheraldi. At the On the Record page, we have a link to the report, Putting Youth Crime in Maryland in Context. Short break on the record. When we're back, a look inside the nonprofits who are working to keep Baltimore City kids safe. I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us. <laughs> 